Often it happens when we're on retreat like this for a longer period of time. We can lose perspective on what it is we're doing here. And so for the benefit of those of you who will be leaving in a couple of days, and the benefit of those of you who will be staying for another six weeks, I thought I would try to give some uh, perspective on what it is we do and why it is we're doing uh, such uh, the things we do. <laughs> After the Buddha's realization of the deepest levels of the truth, when he first spoke about his understanding, he gave a discourse to five renunciates who had practiced with him. And he told them about the Four Noble Truths, what he had discovered to be the significant truths for those who are interested in freeing themselves from suffering. And we know the Four Noble Truths. It's the truth of dukkha, or the truth of suffering or change. The second Noble Truth is that the cause of this suffering is craving. The third Noble Truth is that there is a cessation of dukkha. And the way to realize that, the fourth noble truth, is the path to the cessation of dukkha. Tonight I want to talk about the fourth noble truth because it's the path to the cessation of dukkha that we're actually walking here, that we're actually undertaking, perfecting, practicing. And we can look at the Eightfold Path both from the macro perspective of life in the world, uh, families, communities, international, national, and organizational sufferings, and how uh, one might work towards reducing the suffering in the world today. And we can also look at the Eightfold Path from a very micro perspective, such as we are undertaking here in the moment-to-moment -moment. careful observation, deep-looking, sensitively feeling our way from one moment to next and seeing that the truth or the truths embodied in the Eightfold Path are as applicable in the micro-perspective as they are in the macro-perspective. And so if we can get a glimpse of how our practice here 
is really developing and fulfilling the Eightfold Path, then we'll have no doubt about its benefit, its value, its application when we leave here or in the world at large. The Eightfold Path is an articulation of three trainings or three educations or three purifications, if you will. And I'll be speaking about them in those ways, in those different ways. The first is sila, or uh, ethical conduct. It is the practice that the Buddha offered to deal with the most immediate and the grossest forms of suffering. The suffering that's caused by difficulties in living with others. The disharmony that we all inevitably feel living in families, communities. And let's face it, it is the source of a tremendous amount of our dukkha, of the pain, of the difficulty, of the disappointment, the frustration, the anger, the confusion in our life. It's how we relate or don't relate well to others. And that's the Buddha's first field of activity that he addresses in the Eightfold Path. The second training that I'll speak more about in detail is a training in Samadhi, or the training in calming the mind down tranquilizing the mind, focusing the mind. Because even if we live in a very harmonious household or a harmonious community, such as we have here for the most part, our minds can drive us crazy. We can suffer in the privacy, in the quiet of our own mind and body extraordinary suffering which the harmony of the community doesn't touch doesn't deal with and so the Buddha addressed this level a subtler level of suffering with a second training in concentration the third training that the Buddha offered and spoke about in the Eightfold Path is a training in the development of wisdom. Because how we understand our life, how we understand the conditions of our life, matters. It is really important how we understand why we believe things happen what we believe our practice is all about, what we believe is possible. Seeing deeply into the way things are 
can help us to avoid unnecessary suffering, can open the possibility even of not suffering in the way that we currently do. It addresses the very subtlest forms of discontent, frustration, anxiety, fear that we might feel. So from the macro of communal life to the micro of the subtlest movement of our heart, the Buddha's Eightfold Path is applicable. It's a very comprehensive view. You know, the Buddha's Eightfold Path to uh, freedom from suffering or liberation is not a narrow path. It is a very wide, broad avenue that includes all of our life. The first training, the first education, the first knowledge that the Buddha speaks about is a training in ethical conduct. This is essentially living respectfully, respecting yourself or ourself and respecting others as the key to harmony and happiness. It is based on the agreements, whether they're spoken, acknowledged or not, that we all undertake to live in community with others. And here we undertake five precepts, some of us eight precepts, as a very conscious foundation for our community here. And it is a powerful act for us to make those agreements, to not harm, to not uh, misappropriate property, to speak the truth, to not cloud our mind with intoxicants, to not uh, act out our sexuality. Powerful um, factor in our being here and being able to do what it is we're doing. The community at large doesn't have these agreements. And so we don't feel as safe. We don't have the possibility of being so supported or so open in our heart. In the monastic community or in the community of nuns, they undertake even more communal agreements to address even more refined behavior, refined speech, not as a form of some imposition of some arbitrary authority, but as an expression of their willingness to enter a refined community where the behavior is so carefully attended to 
that it allows for deeper and deeper exploration of freedom and happiness living in community. When one acts outside of the communal agreements, when any of us here acts in such a way as to take ourselves out of the community, then we, we, we commit what is called sin. We're acting outside of the whole for our own private little uh, world. And it takes some act of acknowledgement, some act of recognition, and uh, a conscious uh, intention to, to move back into community. Because once we've taken ourselves out, we feel isolated, we feel alone, we feel cut off from, we don't feel like we belong. And so we need to, uh, within ourselves or with another, to make some acknowledgement or some confession that, you know, I've acted carelessly in this community and because I so value the power of this community, I want to be readmitted, I want to come back, I want to be welcomed back. Such a confession or such an acknowledgement isn't meant to be some sort of a guilt-inducing humili uh, humiliation so much as an empowering act, a self-empowering act of uh, re-establishing our connection with one another. So sila is, or ethical conduct, is really the community's foundations. It's also a training in that we undertake a practice to refrain from certain behavior, to train ourselves in certain behavior, to refrain from speaking, from acting in such a way that it's going to harm ourselves or another. It's something like going to the Nautilus Club of the heart. You know, you exercise your muscles when you go to the club and you, you learn how to do things that, you know, and you have to stretch to, to, to be able to do that. Well, here we have to stretch a little bit to be able to keep our commitment to the community. We have, we've undertaken a training and sometimes it's not easy to follow the precepts. But that's our training, that's our, that's our, uh, what we are trying to learn. Again, it comes from, or it's rooted in, or it's based upon a care for one another. A care for ourselves and a care for one another. Really putting our respect on the front burner, respecting ourselves and respecting one another. Lama Yeshi calls it bodhicitta. He says, if you really want to be happy, it isn't enough just to space out in meditation. Many people who've spent years alone in meditation have finished up the worst for it. Coming back to society, they have freaked out. They haven't been able to take contact with other people again. All the difficulties in interpersonal relationships, 
comes from not having loving-kindness, the essence of the bodhisattva, which creates space in your mind. Your human relationships are not for chocolate, not for sensory pleasures only. Something much deeper can come out of our being together. The more you're involved with people, the more pleasure you get. People become the resource for your pleasure. You're living for people. Then no matter where you go, you'll never freak out. So just be practical. If you can't help others, at least don't bother them. <laughs> it makes it sound so simple. And it really is. But that not bothering others is really exercising some restraint. And sila is a, is a restraint, a choosing not to act out in our habitual, in our familiar, in our unconscious ways, but rather to uh, reflect carefully what behavior what speech, what do we say, what do we do, and how is it going to be felt by others? Where are we coming from, and how is it going to be received? And to go slow enough, and to be quiet enough to reflect on this before acting. For the most part in our lives in the busy world, uh, time is short. We're in a hurry and we don't take the time, often don't take the time, to carefully reflect on what we do and what we say. Such restraint prevents us from acting out the grossest forms of the kalesis. The kalesis being the torment torments of the mind, our greed, our anger, our confusion, our conceit, and anything else that causes you suffering. The grossest forms of acting them out are against each other. When we exercise this restraint, we purify our speech and behavior. Sila is a purification of speech and behavior. When I say it's a purification of our speech, I mean we speak carefully, we speak truthfully, we try to speak gently, we try to speak that which is beneficial to others in a way that they can actually hear it, not just because it's true, but because it's beneficial at the appropriate time. When we take such care with our speech, we can be trusted. We create friendship, intimacy. And our lives are not so superficial. You may know, and we all have friends who are very careful in their speech. How do you think of them? How do you feel about them? 
they somehow reach deeper into our hearts. Because their speech is pure, coming from a place of care, consideration. We don't feel in a struggle or tension with them. Our suffering is less. Right action, on the other hand, is taking care to protect life, to preserve property, to honor relationships, and to keep the mind clear. If we look in the society at large at any one of these areas of life, killing, stealing or misusing the earth's resources, honoring relationships or abusing them, or the use of intoxicants, the amount of suffering engendered because of not caring about just one of these areas of our life or others' lives, the amount of suffering is tremendous. In the individual, the amount of suffering may be acceptable. In the aggregate of society, it's overwhelming. We all contribute to the aggregate in our behavior. If we can undertake this level of respect, self-respect, and respect for others, we will be protected from a lot of suffering, from self-reproach, from judging ourselves, from the bl being blamed by others, being punished by authorities, um, having to uh, pay back or having to receive in return that which we've put out. Tremendous amount of suffering just in the uh, simple movements of the heart that get expressed through speech and action. It's easy to see that when we act, it's a karmic act that has consequences. It plants the seed of results, immediate results and results in the future. What is not so obviously apparent is that the thoughts we think also are a karmic act. Because our actions, what we say and what we do, is led by the mind. We think it in the mind and then we do it. And so the the thought is the karmic precursor to even greater karma of speaking or acting. And so we should be really careful as to how we 
understand our behavior, our speech, where we're coming from, what's our intent in speaking and acting. When we come on retreat and we settle into the silence of our own, uh, maybe I should say, settle into the silence of the center and the noise of our own heart, what we see and discover is how important sila is as a foundation for developing concentration and wisdom. I'm sure you've all had the experience since being here of recurring memories in which you feel guilty or shameful or careless coming up and disturbing the tranquility of your meditation. A direct result of carelessness in this training of sila. It really disturbs the mind to get away with something wrong. Because even though we might, in the hurry of acting, rationalize it or justify it to ourselves, in the quiet of our own heart, we're disturbed. And that's what we, that's what we look at here. That's what we discover. That's where we're, we're looking at the sources of our suffering. Why do we suffer? Because we act carelessly sometimes. Luckily, mindfulness gets so, gets some momentum, and we can't deceive ourselves anymore. This is one of the great blessings in disguise of mindfulness. It clears things away so that we go straight to the heart of the matter. And we see things as they truly are. We see what is right and what is wrong in our heart. Maybe not even what we believe, and maybe certainly not what others believe, but what we know to be true in here. If it causes your own heart to tremble, for you, it's wrong. If it doesn't cause your heart to tremble, for you, it is okay. But that rests on our willingness to look, to really feel deeply for ourselves, to come from and to speak from, to act from a place of an authentic center. Not out of expectations, not out of cultural norms, not out of the authoritarian dogma, but out of our own center. And when we do, we see that to act within the guidelines of our communal agreements really comes from the deepest sources of wisdom. Understanding that our happiness is intimately woven with the happiness of everyone else. A deep understanding that our actions cause not only suffering for others, but ourselves. As such, 
Sila is one of the essential ingredients for establishing a life of the truth. If we're going to live a life of truth, if we're going to live a life of the Dharma, Sila is essential. The happiness that comes from purifying our speech and behavior is the happiness of living in harmony in our community. The love, the benevolence, the safety, the ability to live fearlessly with others. This is a rare happiness. But it is the happiness that we all want. To feel at ease in our community, in our families, in our communities, in our, in our social uh, connections. To be safe. And we can't buy that. We can only cultivate it in our own heart and encourage others to cultivate it in theirs. You know, when people from outside of the center come here, whether it's the UPS person or the postal person or neighbors or whoever it is, they get hit with something so powerful we're in the midst of it. We kind of overlook it. We're, we're used to it. We, we kind of um, kind of lost in it. But when they come in, they get an immediate jolt of how safe, how peaceful, how nice it is to be here. And in fact, earlier in the retreat, there were some uh, neighbors that lived nearby and we don't know how it really happened, but they stopped in one day during lunch and decided it was lunchtime, so they sat down and had something to eat. <laughs> and nobody, nobody told them they couldn't, so they came back again. <laughs> and they thought it was a, a, some kind of a free restaurant or something, I guess. <laughs> but after about the third time, they brought their kids with them. And uh, so one of the persons in the office says, you know, there's some people out there. That, uh, uh, they don't look like they belong to the retreat. Do you know who they are? And I said, no, I don't know who they are. I said, well, what are they doing here? I said, I don't know what they're doing here. So should we talk to them? I said, well, maybe. <laughs> but write them a note. So they wrote them a note, brought them into the office, and said, uh, by the way, um, what are you doing here? <laughs> and, I said, well, it was such a nice place, you know, and everybody was being so nice to us that we just decided to eat. <laughs> and they have no connection with the Dharma. They, they're not, they don't know. They, they've never done a retreat. They don't know anything about it. And yet, they felt so safe and so welcome. And we were all so nice. <laughs> we can live like that. because we live carefully here.
carefully, respectfully of one another, ourselves and one another's. Anyone can feel it. Anyone can get the benefit. It's a powerful, powerful statement to our community to live carefully, respectfully. This is the first training, first education, the first purification in the Buddha's Eightfold Path. The purification of speech and behavior through training in ethical conduct. So here we are living in this harmonious community, for the most part. Harmonious community, not acting out the grossest forms of our tormented mind. Yet, we still suffer. You know, our mind, it's all over the shop. Uh, it really isn't a place that we want to call home, or that we feel so at ease, or even safe sometime. And so the Buddha recognized this, and he said, you know, we need a second, more powerful training to deal with this subtler form of suffering. And for this, he offered the training in concentration, samadhi. Samadhi or concentration is a factor of mind which is present in every moment. Its function is to isolate one of the millions of sense impressions occurring in every moment. Its function is to isolate one of them to pay attention to. Our trick, our task, is to guess which one. <laughs> which one are we paying attention to? Or to notice it, to begin to notice. What is our mind paying attention to? And for that, of course, we choose sometimes to pay attention to the breath. Or we try to choose. And it has some effect. Over the course of time, we do gather some momentum and some, some ability to be with one thing at a time, to pay careful attention, to not be so scattered, to not be so distracted, to stabilize the mind a little bit. Even if we get a little taste, just a little taste of stillness and steadiness in the mind, it is such a relief. And those moments come gradually, bit by bit, and sometimes for longer periods of time, when we actually feel at ease in our own mind, where things are a little bit quieter, a little bit stiller, where we feel a little less tormented by the mind. It's important to recognize this is the function of concentration, to bring us that relief from the obsessive mind. As a training, 
concentration or the practice, the samadhi, development of samadhi, is a training of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Right effort, as you have heard, no doubt, is cultivating and developing wholesome qualities of mind, while at the same time uh, avoiding and overcoming the unwholesome qualities of mind, using our energy, our effort, our intention and attention to do that. In the process, hopefully, and for periods of time, we put aside the hindrances. In the development of concentration, or samadhi, there are five, what are called, the five concentrating factors of mind. And probably they've been mentioned. Connecting the mind, sustaining the mind, joy in the mind, sukha, comfort, and uh, one-pointedness. These five concentrating factors of mind are the five factors which overcome the five hindrances. Sleepiness and dullness is overcome by the application of the mind, the connecting of the mind to our object of meditation, whether it's the breath, walking, the metta, whatever it is. As we continue to apply the mind again and again and again to our meditation, object or subject, then gradually the dullness of sleepiness, sloth and torpor is put aside. But it's the sustaining of the mind, the elongating the mind, the immersing the mind into that object or rubbing your mind into the object which overcomes any doubt as to what that object might be. So it's not enough just to kind of uh, arouse some hyper-vigilant energy that is just hitting on things momentarily. That's too much. What we need is a hit and sustain, hit and rub, hit and immerse ourselves into the object, which brings the balance between energy and tranquility so necessary for the heart to open, for the mind to open. When we do, when we connect and sustain, of course, we see things as they are. Mindfulness arises. Mindfulness isn't something magical. It's from making the effort to connect and sustain. Then we'll see clearly. We'll observe what is arising in this moment. Through continuity of clear seeing, mindfulness, samadhi or concentration deepens. It is the continuity of mindfulness which deepens or collects the mind so that the mind can be more tranquil, more still, more more focused. Concentration in the mind is like seeing things through a magnifying lens. And this is both its benefit 
and its um, difficult aspect. Because as the mind gets more collected, as the mind gets more power of focus, we see things, meaning we feel things, more exquisitely. Pain, for example, as well as pleasure. And so the power of our desires, the power of our fears, the power of our shame, the power of our joy is felt to be magnified. And it is magnified because the mind is so concentrated, the mind is so focused. And so we get what we know here is yogi mind, where the littlest thing becomes the the, the drama of the day. Not because it has changed somehow, but because we've changed. We're seeing it differently. We're looking at it as if through a powerful magnifying lens. But this is necessary. This is necessary in order that we see where the disturbances and the suffering in our mind really is. So that we can uncover the obsessive tendencies of our mind. Because... Obsession torments the mind. And we suffer. We suffer with our obsessions. If we see them clearly, if we feel them more exquisitely and intimately, then we'll be moved to do something about them. By developing the factors of concentration, we put aside the hindrances. We purify the mind in its ability to know clearly, to see things exquisitely, intimately, pristinely. Huang Po was a Chinese Zen master, and he said of this pure mind, this purified mind, the pure mind which is the source of all things, shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. Your true nature is not lost in moments of delusion, nor is it gained at the moment of enlightenment. The pure mind was never born and can never die. It shines throughout the whole universe. It is all-pervading, radiant beauty, absolute reality. It is a jewel beyond all price. And we know that for ourselves when we taste the tranquility of an unhindered mind. What wouldn't we pay to have that mind eternally? But it can't be bought. It can only be cultivated by the practice we're doing here or a similar tranquilizing practice. The stillness and the tranquility that we access here is in large part dependent on the conditions of the retreat. Silence, stillness, uh, non-distraction, 
And so we can sometimes be misled by the power of the stillness in our own mind, believing that we could somehow carry this stillness into the world and at home. And all of us, at one time or another, have found ourselves in the middle of a good sitting and said, won't it be nice to be home and be like this? Or won't it be nice when I go to work and feel like this? Or driving in the car, or whatever it is. Believing that somehow the power of the stillness in our mind is so great that it can somehow overcome the conditions in which we live. But the Buddha realized then not so. We need a third training. Something that is even more powerful yet, and yet more subtle. But the happiness of stillness, the happiness of tranquility, is the seclusion from the torments of the mind. It's exquisite. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. We've all had a taste of it. But it's temporary. It rests on the particular conditions of the moment. And so the third training of the Buddha, Buddha's Eightfold Path, is a training in the development of wisdom or understanding. It is a subtler training. It addresses subtler conditions of suffering. It is the development of clear knowledge clear seeing. Now, there are several layers, of course, and the first is just ordinary mundane knowledge, mundane understanding. What's going on? What's happening? Just being aware, connected to the environment, connected to our bodies, connected to our mind. And we spend most of our time, actually, in practice just getting connected with the moment just trying to be here, out of our delusions, out of our fantasy, out of the entrancement of the internal dialogue, and to get in touch with the reality of our life. The Buddha said, for the purification of your mind, you must, oh, for overcoming sorrow, distress, for overcoming pain and sadness, for the realization of Nibbana or the liberation of mind, one should abide ardent, clearly aware, and mindful of the arising and vanishing of the four foundations of mindfulness. That's an extraordinary statement, if we could believe it. If we really took that in, he said, for overcoming sorrow, for overcoming all distress, for overcoming all pain, all sadness, for realizing the liberated mind, pay attention to what's arising in this moment. Just pay attention to what's arising in the moment. 
What could be simpler? It really isn't very complicated. We make it complicated. Our minds are very complicated. And so when we look at, or when we hear the simplicity of this instruction, we think we have to interpret it. We have to fix it. We have to embellish it. We've really got to do something different than what he actually said. But we don't. We really do just have to pay attention to what is arising in this moment. And when we do, we begin to discover momentary experience. It's so simple. The body, the mind, the thoughts, the emotions. It's one thing after another. But each moment has its own flavor, what's called its sabhava. It has its own feel to it, its own physical feeling, its own mental feeling, its emotional feeling. It has its own characteristic. It's not what we think. It's not what we hope for. It's not what we expect. It's the way things really are. Before we can open to the deeper knowledge that the Buddha's practices point to, the Buddha's deepest understandings, wisdom, we have to be in touch with the present moment. And what are the deeper truths that the Buddha points to? that the Buddha's practices take us to. Sometimes people come in to interviews and they say, what is the insight I'm supposed to be having? Or some variant of that. Nothing in particular. But we do, of course, as you know, we go through a layer, layers of psychological insight, family conditioning insight, cultural conditioning insight, political insight, economic insight. We go through all layers and layers and layers of insights before we ever get to the Buddha's understanding of Vipassana insight. All of that before we get to Vipassana insight, which is insight into impermanence, insight into dukkha, insight into anatta. We've spoken about, <clears throat> excuse me, we've spoken about these insights, these conditions, these characteristics of all phenomena. It's not thought. It really is what is revealed in the moment of just paying attention again and again and again and again without interpretation, without trying to figure out, without trying to explain, without even trying to connect one moment to the next.
but just to see how each moment is a particle appearing in all time and all space. And letting it come and letting it go. And not claiming it as mine. We need to see things a lot. We need to see things several times before we can establish that relationship of not being tormented by what is arising. But it comes. Slowly we can grow in understanding, in acceptance, in tolerance of the ups and downs, the joys and sorrows, the pleasures and pains, the losses and gains of our practice, of our life. Slowly we come to understand that our happiness, the deepest source of our happiness, is not really what's happening, but how we're relating to it. Whether we see it clearly, and whether we react with fear, clinging, or balance of mind. It may be pleasant, it may be painful. That's not our choice. But how we respond is, if we see clearly enough, then we'll let things be as they are. Then we find this tranquility of mind, this peace of mind, which is not dependent on conditions. It's not just because the mind is concentrated. It's not just because we live in a harmonious community. It's because we have seen through the artificial happiness of relationship to things and have found the happiness of peace within. It's much subtler, but it addresses a much subtler suffering. To the extent that we come to know ourselves and how we relate to the events of our life here, we take that knowledge home with us. We don't take the experience, we don't take the quiet, we don't take the format of the retreat. All we take is our understanding of ourself and how we can relate to the ups and downs, the joys and sorrows of our life. We look at things here as if through a powerful magnifying lens. When we go home, we back off from the power of that lens only. We still see the same thing. We still see our thoughts, our plans, our fears, our attachments. But we have a new way of relating to them, a way of less suffering. But we have to trust have to trust that what we have seen here, we will remember there. 
and we do. This is the Buddha's Eightfold Path. Three trainings, three purifications, addressing three levels of suffering in our life. Purifying speech and behavior, creating harmony and community, purifying the mind, creating a tranquility of mind, and purifying our understanding, seeing the way things truly are, allowing us to access the happiness of peace. So let's sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.